0: Previously on Suspicion,
1: one person held out that could not not agree with a guilty verdict.
2: Jim Bell is a ringmaster. He's a showman. He's very aggressive. Um, He fights tooth and nail with the prosecution. Sometimes over things that shouldn't even be fought over.
3: I was here like this. I was like that. Everything you're looking at is in place has not
1: been destroyed,
4: okay? Well, it absolutely turns into a circus. I mean, you have more officers than you need.
5: But I ask you now to let us go now and heal from the torture and torment of the... Uh, 10 days of this arduous trial that this woman has had to suffer. This woman is not guilty of killing her beloved David. She still loves him and he lays in
4: her heart and mind. Absolutely, and finally his soul can rest.
1: I thought they might be able to reach a verdict,
6: They didn't, so there'll be another time.
5: I assume you want to retry this case before you try that. Yes, Sean. If we really can't talk about the case, we're going to trial again, and for that reason, we have to remain silent.
6: It's January 2010. Seven years ago, popular West Knoxville barber David Leith was found dead, shot in the forehead. Ten months ago, jurors in Knox County Criminal Court deadlocked 11 to 1 to convict his wife, Rainella Dossett Leith, of killing him. Now, a second trial is about to begin. From the Knoxville News Sentinel... And the USA Today Network, Tennessee, this is suspicion.
5: Anella has full faith and confidence in the justice system.
6: The facts haven't changed. Knox County 911.
1: Help me! Help me! It was reported to us as a uh, gunshot to that had a possibility uh, of a suicide because that's how it was essentially reported to the Sheriff's Department.
4: She had been out running errands. She'd visited her mother-in-law. She'd gone to take some medication to her daughter at school. She came home. She had expected to find David out. Because he was there when she left. Uh, while she was running her errand, she had called the house, and he didn't answer. And so she expected that he had gone with one of his friends or gone to the gym so that he was not home. She came home. She didn't hear anything. She went to the back and found David dead in, in their bed.
3: It was determined that three shots had been fired from the firearm that killed David
4: Leith. It doesn't look like a movie suicide.
1: I said, how would my dad you know, know where to shoot himself? And she said, oh, he, he had shot um, cows before. And I
2: was like, my dad didn't use guns, he <laughs> didn't.
6: But new evidence has surfaced since the first trial. A letter penned by Rainella, Prosecutors Richard Fisher, Mac McCoyne, and Cynthia Schimmel say the letter shows her true stripes. The search requested by my current husband, David Leith, without my knowledge, and mailed to his place of business, left me with a feeling of betrayal on covert activities. This is not only an unpleasant sensation, but is infuriating. An angry, surprised woman can be difficult to handle if overwhelmed enough times. Journalist Jamie Satterfield explains.
2: In November 1999, this is four years before David Leith was found dead, he apparently hired a title firm, and a title firm is basically a group of lawyers and paralegals, to research the value of the property that both Raynella had and he had. And, even more curious, he didn't tell Raynella and had the title company send the bill for the work to the barbershop, which would indicate that he did not want her to know that he was doing this. A month later... She apparently finds out. It's never been clear how she found out. But her response was to confront the lawyers. Uh, She fired off this angry letter that you've now heard. That letter, though, did not become public or part of this case until just before Raynella's second trial. And the prosecution is arguing that jurors should get to hear and see this letter because it's proof that the marriage was falling apart well before this death and that this letter may have been the beginning of Rainella deciding that she was going to get rid of David Leith.
1: It's our belief that it was perhaps he had outlived his usefulness. Yeah, I, I don't know what's in her head, but... That would be our theory and was our theory.
6: Judge Richard Baumgartner refuses to let jurors in the second trial
2: hear it. Judge Baumgartner is concerned that this letter would be too prejudicial against Rainella. What he said was that this letter was written four years before this death. Lots of things have happened in that four years that there's no clear nexus between this letter, and this incident, and David Lee's death. So there's nothing that makes it material or relevant. The judge ultimately rules that uh, it can't come in, so the prosecutors will not get to show jurors this letter.
5: If Bunker had let that come in, that would have been such a weighty piece of evidence.
6: It's a blow for the prosecution just as the second trial is set to start. But they are ready for a repeat of the fierce battle attorney James A.H. Bell had mounted in the first trial.
1: The second trial, we tweaked some things, but it was nice having the transcript there to go along with it, but we did tweak some things. And the defense tried a different kind of defense than the first trial. There was a back and forth with them about whether it was suicide or someone had come in the house and shot him. They were attacking on anything they could, but those theories were put out.
6: But in a stunning move, Bell drops suicide as a
2: defense. He drops most of his expert witnesses, too. Jim Bell pulled out all the stops in the first trial, including shipping a bed to California with an armored escort. But here at second trial, he's dropped his expert witnesses largely, he has dropped any effort to show jurors this bed and to attack the blood spatter and and the order of shots and all of that. He essentially drops the idea that this was suicide. And instead, what he simply does is look over at the state and say, you say she did it, then prove it. We don't have to prove nothing.
1: No, I mean, that's certainly uh, the defense's prerogative, and how they approach it, um, I, I think he saw that maybe, you know, in the previous trial, it didn't go exactly the way he wanted it. Maybe there was one holdout, but you had 11 that thought she was guilty. So you step back, and you see maybe going in a different direction.
2: Bell didn't even call a key alibi witness, Raynella's daughter, Katie. Her daughter was at home at the
1: time, too, and she left at a certain time to go to school. Well, obviously, we could use her, and did, in terms of placing the time when she left, her mother being at home at that time, uh, and then with the medical examiner, being able to examine the body and tell us approximately the time that he died. So we were able to peg it to right around the time that... Miss Leith was still home or right there after.
2: Jim Bell would later say that Katie uh, was having medical issues and that he just simply felt like it wasn't beneficial to put her through another trial and that Maggie, the other daughter, was able to tell jurors about this loving relationship that he says that David and Raynella had. So he later argued that he did not need to call Katie as a witness. And Katie also becomes a factor again in the alibi because Raynella says that Katie was sick that day, called her from school, and Raynella went to the school, took her some milkshakes and some medication. So Katie is very much a part of the alibi, and Jim Bell has never really explained why he did not feel the need to put her up on that issue.
1: I mean, trying to poke holes through her alibi, you know, was what, what we tried to do and relay to the jury that it was just too perfect. You know, can you, as a juror, go out and say where you were every minute of the day and be seen and have people to testify to
2: it? Bell's decision not to call Katie Dossett had another impact as well. In the first trial... Katie was very emotional, and she talked about how much she loved David Leith, how much her mother loved David Leith, and she had an impact on jurors. Jurors are told that they're not supposed to be swayed by sympathy or emotion, but when you get a young lady up there and she's just bawling her eyes out, the jury looks sympathetically upon that person. That's just the way it is. So to have that emotional impact would have been beneficial to the defense. Now, Jim Bell says, hey, I called the other daughter, Maggie. She said the same sort of things. No big deal.
6: After two days of deliberations, the jury returns with its verdict guilty. Bumgardner imposes an automatic life sentence and orders Raynella immediately imprisoned. But as the prison doors slam shut, a former deputy and a former cop are crossing paths in a chance encounter at the same courthouse where Raynella was convicted weeks earlier. Here's Raynella's defense attorney, Josh Hedrick, explaining what happened.
4: Steve Robinson, was a sheriff's deputy. He says to Shane Cooper, who is Jim Bell's investigator, that they know each other because Shane used to be uh, in law enforcement. And uh, so they get talking.
6: As the two catch up, Cooper mentions his work on Ranella's case.
4: Steve Robinson says, oh yeah, I I remember that. I was up there that morning. Total surprise because he's not on any of the scene logs It doesn't appear anywhere as being at the scene.
2: From the moment that law enforcement arrives on the scene of a death, they are supposed to create what's called a crime scene log. And this is basically a listing with time included, who's at the scene, who arrives at the scene, the times of all of that, where these people are. It's a detailed accounting of who is at the scene of a crime. And in this case, the problem was, according to the defense, that there were way too many people at this scene and that the crime scene log was woefully inadequate in cataloging everyone that was there. They knew,
1: the police knew who she was, being the former wife of a district attorney. Uh, so they knew who she was, knew who they were dealing with. You had numerous you know, first responders out on the scene and police. The house was in disarray all over. That wasn't because of what happened that day, it just, it was. I believe the police did their best to maintain the scene But like I said, because of who she was and and the community, it was a pretty close-knit community, Uh, there were many on the scene.
4: They're maintaining a scene log. The scene log doesn't get started until sometime after people are showing up. The scene log is telling us who is at the house, but not necessarily who is in and out of the bedroom.
6: But that's not the only revelation Robinson makes in that chance encounter.
3: Jim Bell said that his investigators have located a deputy who was on the scene at the time and said that another deputy came out of the house waving the handgun that killed David Lee. said, I found the weapon. I found the gun. Here it is. And he goes back in the house and puts the gun back down.
2: And why is that significant?
3: If it were true, the position of the handgun has a lot to do in determining where someone that's been shot has been uh, murdered or suicide. but there's three spent casings in the, uh, there's six cylinders, three live, three spent. One of them went in the hem. We found one that's in the bed. It's it shot down into the bed and there's a lot of powder burns around the sheet and up on the sheet.
1: The first shot missed and went into the wall and the second shot killed him. Then the third shot that was down in the mattress was the last one to come out.
2: Part of the state's theory, in terms of Raynella having staged this to look like a suicide, was the fact that the gun is laying next to David Lee's body, but it's laying in a position, it's sort of butt backward, in the sense that the butt of the gun is not laying where you would expect it to, if it had been in his hand when it was fired. It looks placed. If
6: Robinson's story is true, even prosecutors Cynthia Schimmel and Richard Fisher agree that's really bad news for the prosecution.
1: Well, it created a problem of number one chain of custody Uh, In terms of who had the gun. Number two, where it was specifically lying on the bed next to the body and how that mattered according to the shots and where the shots were, where the gun was in relation to the gunpowder on the bed, on the gun, on his head. So it would be vital to the
2: case. That's problematic just in and of itself, if that occurred and it wasn't documented. But it's problematic for another reason that impacts whether or not this was indeed a suicide or a murder.
0: Well, if the gun's been disturbed, then that raises the question, was the cylinder disturbed? In which case, the order of shots would uh, be completely out of out of line with the prosecution's argument.
3: That's another thing. It would suggest that it was a possibility that the position of the cartridges could have been manipulated. However... In the case of a revolver, you would happen to open the gun up and pull the cylinder out to do that. I mean, it's not impossible. Physically, it could easily be done.
6: Here's retired Tennessee Bureau of Investigation firearms expert Don Carman.
3: You would actually have to be
5: conscious of the fact that I need to put a fired cartridge case in the 12 o'clock position and one at the 2 o'clock position and one at the 4 o'clock position. You just happen to get those in those particular positions. It's possible that you would pretty much have to take out the cartridge cases and put it in that particular order. I mean, actually put them in uh, yourself instead of just twirling the cylinder around. What they want to show was that somebody in law enforcement could have gone in, gotten the gun, opened it up, taking the hulls out and put them in a different order, shut them out, and then rock out with a gun. It, it, it's so, such a stretch, a bizarre stretch anyway. But it was, again, you grab for anything you can to muck up the picture.
2: As a former cop, investigator Shane Cooper knows this is a big deal for Raynella and her defense. Cooper tells Bell, and then Bell instructs Cooper to set up a meeting with Robinson, which he does. And he convinces Robinson to sign an affidavit in which he swears to what he's told Cooper, and that is that he did not see this gun on the bed, that he saw a deputy remove it from the bedroom. The prosecution, though, has no idea this is going on. Remember, this is a meeting in a bathroom between Cooper and Robinson that leads to Robinson signing an affidavit. The prosecution is completely unaware of that until Bell hits them with this bombshell in a motion uh, asking Judge Baumgartner to grant her a new trial. Prosecutors fight back.
0: So as soon as Bell files this motion, Moyers calls Robinson and challenges it.
3: Guys, if you ever get one where someone has shot themselves, and sometimes you need to remove the weapon. If you would for us, if it's a five shot or six shot, whatever it is, just make you a circle. And put you that many, that way you've got one for each cylinder. And then what you do, whenever you raise it up, we want to know if there's a live round or a spent casing or empty. And you can rewrite it any way you want to to explain it to me. And one thing we'll do, too, whenever we put, after I unload it here, we'll check and make sure what the rotation is on the cylinder because that might be important. If You have two on the right and it rotates to the left.
6: The prosecutors accused Bell publicly of knowingly filing a false affidavit which is a crime that could cost him his law license.
0: Bell fires back and says, oh no, prosecutors went to Robinson
5: and tried to get him to take back his story. Jim Bell can say that, but I don't think that happened. Bell and I got into uh, such a heated argument and disciplinary complaints came from. Robinson stated after he'd had time to think about it, and he was at Fort Benning. We did a conference call on the record With all attorneys there, and took his testimony by stipulation, and the judges, and the the judge was present, yeah, and uh, so it's part of the record. And he says he misremembered. He he just totally said that was a mistake.
3: I, I think that once the deputy recanted, that rendered the whole thing moot, as the lawyers like to say, which is a fancy word for meaningless.
6: But it's not just the prosecutors labeling Bell as a liar.
2: Just two months after Raynella is convicted, a federal judge unseals an investigation of attorney Bell that had been going on in secret throughout Raynella's second trial.
0: Bell is accused of basically making up a meeting with a client in order to essentially get out of a case in federal court he gives a very detailed account describes what the client wore what time of day it was what the weather was like and then the judge happens to discover that the client was actually in jail on the day of the meeting he publicly sanctioned mr bell and ordered him to pay a fine and go through some ethics trial
2: why that's important is because one could argue that bell was distracted by his own possible disbarment or sanctions that he may be facing so the idea being that he was not giving 110 percent during her second trial and there's also this idea that because bell knew that he was under investigation that he certainly didn't want to be combative with prosecutors or anybody in authority and therefore was not adequately representing Raynella as a result. He's the type
1: of attorney that I mean he, he is gonna be an obstructionist. He's gonna do anything he can for his client. And hey, you're supposed to represent your client zealously. You can't blame him for that.
6: But one of the clients Jim Bell zealously represented is now locked up for life. Another has secrets about the judge that sent her there. on the next episode of Suspicion.
5: Dr. Pettigo was very candid. When I called him, he said, I've been waiting a long time for this phone call.
6: High morphine levels from toxicology reports that came back after Dossett's burial raised concerns that he too might've been killed.
5: Because is it possible that this thing was staged by the family, even with Ed's consent? Mm -hmm. Yes, that's
3: possible.
6: Suspicion is a production of the Knoxville News Sentinel and the USA Today Network, Tennessee. It is narrated by me, Courtney Roark, written by Jamie Satterfield, and produced by John Garcia, Erica Whitney, and Angela Gosnell. Original theme music by Elijah Newman and Chris Potosik. Sound engineered by Elijah Newman. Letters and transcripts for this episode were read by Donna Colburn. You can subscribe to Suspicion wherever you typically listen to podcasts. Be sure to rate and leave a review as well. You can also keep up to date with us on social media. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SuspicionPod.